0: Tenney does a great job leading us in worship. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> we have been in this book for about 8 to 10 weeks, and we know several things about it. We don't know who wrote it, we don't know who it's written to, but we know what it's written about. It's written to help those who are tempted to leave the Christian faith and go back into Judaism, not to fall for it. There are people that because of persecution, loss of property, the threat of being imprisoned, maybe even to be uh, killed and lose their life, had made them think that Judaism looked a little more attractive than it used to. And so in different ways, in different language, the writer encourages him, don't drift away, you know, like a boat, don't drift away. And then he says, don't harden your hearts. Don't let your heart be callous like a path that the seed cannot fall upon. And then he tells them, do not uh, fall away into apostasy, knowing the truth and then giving up the truth completely. And the way he deals with it, he's saying you're making a choice between Jesus and what he offers and Judaism. And he says, Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than any high priest. Don't leave Jesus. And that's what uh, we're going to see today, that he uses a different uh, analogy. He talks about we have a new and a better covenant than the old covenant. So you will hear the word covenant several times. And so listen to the word of God. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in a sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for they are already men who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve in a sanctuary that is a copy, a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses war- was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as a covenant to which he is a mediator. is superior to the old one and it's founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another covenant. But God found fault with the people and said, and then he quotes Jeremiah, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This is God's word. To God's people, let us pray. Father, Hebrews is not easy to understand or comprehend, and we need your help. I need your help to explain it, to illustrate it, to apply it congregation needs its, your help to understand it, to see how it affects our daily life. Work in our lives. Help us to hear your word even today in the name of Jesus. Amen. If we were people who followed the liturgical calendar, today would be Reformation Day, where we celebrate Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517. If you were to read those 95 theses, you would realize that what Martin Luther was opposed to, he was really opposed to the sale of indulgences, which was the selling of forgiveness of sin, not only for yourself, but for your loved ones who might be in purgatory. And he was also calling the church to repent, to reform. He never meant to destroy the church or even to leave the church. And the Reformation, as it spread, it took on several themes, several solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Christa, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Del Gloria, which simply means scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and to the glory of God alone. But if you were to take those five solas as the summary of the Reformation, you would be lacking in your understanding of history. Because the solas were the key points, but they weren't all the points. Uh, we know that one of the things that came out of the Reformation is what we call the priesthood of all believers. And what the priesthood of all believers meant is that the priesthood was seen as a, something that was a higher calling than anybody else's calling. And what the Reformers did was they said everybody had a calling. That your calling was just as important as a priest's calling. The calling of a mother or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a pastor or whatever was just important. But what also came about when you talked about the priesthood of all believers is that everybody was a priest, that everybody could approach God in prayer, that when Jesus died on the cross the veil was torn from top to bottom and the holy place was opened up to everybody. And that we now with faith and confidence can enter into the throne room of God boldly and find grace and mercy in our time of need. So the reformers were not saying you don't need a priest. They were saying you already have one. You have a great high priest that's much better, much, much better than any priest on earth. This passage is breaks up into two parts. We have a better priest, and we have a better covenant with better promises. And so let's look at just two points. We have a better high priest. If you have been here the past several weeks, we have talked about the priesthood of Jesus, and we have seen that Jesus was a great high priest in that he was sympathetic. He was tempted in all points like as we are. You'll never approach Jesus and not find a sympathetic heart. Uh, Jesus was sinless. He can deal with your sins because he doesn't have to deal with his own sins. Tempted in all points like as we are without but yet without sin. Jesus is eternal, meaning that he didn't die. He doesn't die. Priests would die. You would have a priest that you liked and you, you would be sad when he died or you had a priest that you didn't like and you'd be glad when he's gone. But with Jesus, he was ever living he had an indestructible life, it said in one passage. And so the writer has already built up this idea that Jesus is a great high priest, and now he's going to say he's greater than you can even imagine. And what he says is you look in verse one. It says the point we're trying to the point of what we're saying is this. He's saying, in other words, if you've been asleep the whole time reading this sermon, He says, the point that I'm trying to make is this. We have such a high priest who sat down at the throne of God's majesty on high. We have a priest that sat down. Did you know that of all the furniture in the tabernacle, there was one thing that was not there? There's no chair. Because the priest's work was never done. The sacrifices were never over. They were never ending. In the people of God, in the economy of that time, there was always blood to be shed. There was always atonement to be made. There was always something to do. And now Jesus sits down symbolizing that he has finished his work, that he's finished the redemption on the cross. He said it is finished, meaning that he has made the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of all of God's people of all time. And Jesus' sacrifice completed all sacrifices. And since sacrifices were over, he sat down. He's not going to get up and say, Tim did that again, i got to make another sacrifice. Or Will did that again, i got to go again. No, there's no more sacrifice. But to sit down was not only to sit down, but where he sat down. He sat down on the throne of majesty next to God in the heavenly temple. He sat at a place of honor. James and John wanted those seats. Remember, I want to be on your right and I want to be on your left. And Jesus is sitting on the right, which indicates he is a, a ki- he's a priest, but he's also a king. He reigns and overrules. And what we see in this idea is Psalm 2. God is making his enemies his footstool as he sits and reigns and Psalm one ten makes the same thing, but there's another word that we emphasize is he serves in the true tabernacle. He serves in the true tabernacle, verse two. Uh, ben took us through Exodus and took us through the tabernacle and all that we uh, remember about that and all the details and everything, and it was uh, glorious. The tabernacle was amazing. You know, it describes the gold and all the fine uh, linen and all the colors that were there and all the things that were part of the worship. And then we get to the tabernacle actually itself, the temple that Solomon made, and it was glorious as well. And people, Josephus and others, say that it was a, one of the wonders of the world. But here it says that they were only shadows and copies of what the real tabernacle is. And Jesus is in the real tabernacle. He's in heaven. He's in heaven at the God's right hand and he ever lives to make intercession for his people. Jesus's work on earth is finished, but his work in heaven is to pray for you and to pray for me. Listen to this commentary that writes about Jesus. He ties it to Jesus' foot washing. Jesus' foot washing service here on earth is not an aberration of his incarnation. Service is part of his divine being. Think of it. Jesus, our eternal priest, sits on the Father's right hand in glory, enthroned on the emerald top of a crystal sea amongst the adoration of millions serving in our behalf. God serves me. It's a ludicrous expression, but it's true. Take a deep breath. Swallow your incredulity and humbly believe it. Jesus' prayers are placed in our service, yours and mine. There are no lapses, no disaffections, no uneven devotion, only a loving constancy of intercession, serving us with his prayers. That's what Jesus is doing now. And the tabernacle that the Jewish people that wanted to leave or attempted to leave and go back to was only a shadow. We went this past weekend to see my son and uh, family in the Memphis area. And their trees are a little bit ahead of ours and the red maples were, they were glorious. You know, I think that's probably one of my favorite trees and where we uh, went to eat was kind of in a wooded area And the parking lot was just covered with red maples. I mean, every little place you went in the middle of the median were red maple trees. And I had to get my phone out to make sure I was right. But those trees shaded the parking lot. So wherever you parked, you know, morning or night, you know, you're in the shade of that. Morning or evening, you'd be in the shade of those trees. But the shadows aren't very good looking. Shadows have no color except black. They have no depth. They have no real constancy. They vary as the day goes, shorter or wider or longer. They just point to the reality. Shadows point to the reality. And when we talk about the tabernacle being a shadow, we most of the time think about a shadow that's fulfilled in the New Testament. And that's true, but that's only partially true. The shadow is cast by the reality, the eternal reality of heaven. That the Lamb of God existed from all eternity and he casts a shadow on the lambs that were slain on the day of atonement that became the real atonement in Jesus. But the reality of the atonement in the Lamb was in heaven. The reality of the tabernacle was in heaven. The reality of the high priest is in heaven. And that eternal reality casts a shadow in the Old Testament that will be clarified in the New. But what the writer is saying, don't go back to a shadow. Jesus is the only reality for your life. Think about an illustration that Sinclair Ferguson gave. He said in his house growing up, they had one of those rooms, I forgot what he called them, maybe it was a parlor, you know, one of those nice rooms where you, you never go. You know, we used to have a lot of those rooms growing up, you know. Couch might still have the plastic on it or whatever, you know, and you have all the little fancy chairs that look good but are terribly uncomfortable. And uh, you know the kind of room I'm talking about. And he said in that room was a picture of his uncle. And his uncle being his mother's brother, and he was in uniform and he had been missing in action since the war. And he said, I never, quote, knew my uncle, but I knew a lot about him because my mom was always talking about her brother. And he told me about, you know, what he did as a kid in high school and everything. And he said, I knew all about him, but I didn't know him. And he said, just imagine... He's missing in action and they all of a sudden find him. And he walks in the door. The picture would change drastically, wouldn't it? Would you say, no, I don't want him. I got this picture right here, this picture. This is what I want to remember, not this guy here. The picture would pale in comparison with the reality of your brother showing up. And that's the idea here. Jesus is the real deal. And the Jewish Christians were... Tempted to leave. The second thing that we see here is there's a better covenant with better promises. Ben alluded to it, but the covenant is rarely hard to explain in a brief amount of time. But it's very significant in your understanding of Scripture, so I'm going to try to give a shot at being brief. The covenant is important because, just think about this, we're Covenant Presbyterian Church. And we belong to Covenant as our district, our our Presbytery is called Covenant, and our college is Covenant College. And our seminary is Covenant Seminary. And you get the idea, man, this covenant means a big deal. And what you could say is that we have the covenant is our way of God unfolding to us his relationship with his people. It's a it's a framework, a hermeneutic by which we study the scriptures. And the scriptures aren't seven or whatever dispensations that end in failure. But it's a covenant that blossoms into reality. There's a covenant with Adam. There's a covenant with Noah. There's a covenant with Abraham. There's a covenant with Moses. There's a covenant with David. There's a new covenant said by Jeremiah. There's a covenant instituted in the blood of Christ at the Last Supper. But a covenant is an agreement between two or more people. Let's just say two people, and it's kind of like kind of like a contract in that it has legal binding power, and you have promises that you have to fulfill. And if you don't keep your promises, and you have punishments that you have to face, blessings and curses is what we call them in the Bible. And you cut a covenant. Hang on now, y'all, wake up. You cut a covenant. Like we cut a deal, you cut a deal, well, you know where that comes from. When we cut a covenant in the Old Testament, you see this in Genesis 15, that God had Abram cut some animals in two. And then God passed through the animals and made a covenant with with Abraham. When a king made a covenant with a servant, he would take a, animal of some kind and he would cut it in half and he would separate the halves and he would make the person taking the covenant stand between the halves and he would say here's what you're going to do and if you do that i'm going to do this and if you don't do that i'm going to cut you in two like these two animals cut a covenant it's a big deal to cut a covenant Another helpful way to look at a covenant, it was unilateral. When we make a covenant, we deal with somebody. You give me this, I give you that. You, know, you, you take this away, I take that away. You know, we get our lawyers together and we strike up a deal. There's no dealing in the covenants in the Bible. They're unilateral. God imposes them on us, invites us into them. And for that reason, in the next chapter... In the book of Hebrews, he calls it a testament, like a will and a testament, and the testator is the one who makes the will, and you know, when the will is, is opened and read, that's the deal. You don't get to say, hey, no, 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 you might go to court and do it, but the, the, the will is a deal. It's unilaterally imposed upon you. These are unilaterally imposed upon God's people, and what? the passage is saying is we have a better covenant than the old covenant the old covenant is obsolete the old covenant is can't read my writing is outdated the old covenant is like a bridge that gets us between two things the old covenant something was wrong with it or they never said there's going to be a new covenant in the old testament and before you say, well, why in the world would God enter into a covenant that wouldn't work or become obsolete? Remind you that we you were here last week, it's planned obsolescence. God never planned for the old covenant to be eternally binding. God never planned for the old covenant to, to be the way of salvation. There was always this idea of a new covenant, a new improved covenant, a covenant not completely new, but a new covenant. I was thinking about new and improved products. You know, I would think that we are, you know, we're sophisticated people. And man, we can put people on the moon. We can, you know, shoot these rockets out of the air. You would think we could get toothpaste right. But every time you turn around, your toothpaste is new and improved, isn't it? Have you ever bought any old, unimproved toothpaste? I mean, you start looking, man. They put uh, bacon powder in it, tooth whitener in it, you know, Sensodyne in it, uh, gravel in it, you know, whatever. But they're going to name it new and improved because it's 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 like the old crest, but it's it's new crest. It's like the old covenant, but this one's better. And the things that Jesus is saying is better here. The old covenant, in a degree gave to the people, but not to the degree that we have in these. And so what are the new covenant? Somebody messed with my clock and I have no idea. So we're just going to go to a finish. But anyway, there are four ways this covenant is better. One is it's written on our heart. The context of the passage is Moses was taken up on the mountain and he was given the model of the tabernacle, make it just like this. Moses was a mediator of that covenant. And where was the law written? On stone. Written by the finger of God on stone. And what the writer is saying here is it's written on our heart. It's written in our mind. One man said the the heart is a sanctuary of our life, uh, but the mind is the foyer. You have to go through the foyer to get to the heart. God's going to write it on our minds and in our minds and on our hearts. The heart is the problem. The problem with Judaism in the old day was that it was all external. They had turned the law that was designed to be internal. When Jesus interpreted the law, he said, it's not just murder, but it's anger. It's not just adultery, it's lust. It's not just stealing, it's coveting. It was meant to be of the heart. And the Judaism turned it into an external religion so that Jesus would say, you look like whitewashed tombs. You're good on the outside, but you're full of dead man's bones. You're like a cup that's clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. And what happens in the New Covenant is God writes it on our heart. How do you know God writes it on His heart, your heart? I'll say it in my breadneck way. Your woner is changed. You want to do different things. You want to worship. You want to read the Bible. You want to be better at prayer. You want to forgive. You 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 want to love God. You want to love your neighbor. And you might not do it like you want to and you'll constantly live in Romans 7. The good I want to do, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the bad I don't want to do, I do anyway. But in that fight, the woner has been changed. Our hearts are changed in this new covenant, and we're born again, and we're new creatures in Christ. Christian Bernard was the first surgeon to do a heart transplant. One of his patients was Dr. Philip Blayberg, and Blayberg was asked by Dr. Bernard, would you like to see your old heart? Which made me think about when I had my tonsils out, I brought them home. Did y'all bring your tonsils home? I wonder where they are, but anyway. So Dr. Bernard asked, do you want to see your heart? He asked several questions and he took it down from the cupboard and the guy looked at it, the other doctor looked at it and asked a bunch of technical questions only doctors could could ask. And then he put the glass container back on the shelf and said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He handed it back, turned away and left it forever. You know, that's what we have to say. God, give me a new heart. Take away the heart of stone that doesn't want to love you or serve you and give me a new heart. The second thing is they'll know me. In the New Covenant, they'll know me. They'll have an intimate relationship with me. To know in the Bible has several definitions, but to know in the Bible that we're talking about now is to know intimately in a relationship. That it won't be just a religion, but there'll be a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But knowing about God and knowing God go together. You've got to know the Bible to know God. That's where He reveals Himself. But when you look at the Reformation, that's one of the things that Luther and Calvin and all the Reformers wanted to do, to get the Bible in the hands of the people. So let's say, how do you know you experiencing this knowledge have you ever read the bible and things just all of a sudden make sense tim keller says they become radioactive you know have you ever just been reading something and you got you have one of those aha moments where the holy spirit just opens your mind to the knowledge of god i didn't know that i can remember sitting in seminary one day and i knew jesus i'd quoted the apostle's creed you know and all of that I remember my professor talking about Jesus' body being in heaven, still bearing the scars. And it was like, You said, what? It was like I'd never heard that before. That's how you know you know that the gospel realities begin to jump off the page or you understand them for the first time. Let's move on. You'll become my people, my people and I'll be your God that's the third that's the third part of the new covenant you'll be my people and I'll be your God that promise has been made from Genesis to Revelation like I said they experienced some of the new covenant in the old covenant they they were the people of God and now we are the people of God the Israel was the church of God now the church of God church is the Israel of God We're the people of God. God is our God and Jesus is our Savior and the Holy Spirit is living within us. It's a personal, intimate relationship. And the Bible describes our relationship. We're the apple of God's eye. We are the bride of Christ. I loved it when Brian Sorgenfrey said about us being the bride of God. He says, God doesn't just tolerate you. God loves you. He loves you. In Christ, He rejoices over you. He's pleased with you in Christ. Apart from Christ, it's a different story. But in Christ, you're His bride. You're His person. And we'll sing in a little while, We Are God's People, and I hope it will make more sense as you sing it. And the last thing is, I will forgive their sins and remember them no more. Not really a accurate translation there although it captures the idea the word is really mercy and the reason i think it's mercy is because it's the same word that used in the septuagint uh, to describe the mercy seat and what happened at the mercy seat the mercy seat was on the it was the lid of the ark of the covenant two cherubim were on the top and the mercy seat was there and inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had the law and Aaron's Rod and Manna and other things, you know. And it was in the Holy of Holies. So you had you had this thing that only one time a year anybody saw it, and it was only one person. And he would go in there and he would take the sacrifice of the Lamb of the Atonement, and he'd pour it on the mercy seat. And the people of God's sins would be atoned for. They believed that that that's they believed God's word and The scapegoat took away their sins. What the writer is saying is your sins have been mercy seated. That God doesn't see the broken law in the box. He sees the blood that covers your sin and washes it away. And he remembers it no more. He remembers it no more. It's not that God has amnesia and he said, "Doesn't I mean if God actually didn't remember him, he'd have to forget history." And don't stone me for heresy. Just stay with me. We talk about forgive and forget. What does that mean? It means you don't hold it against them. You know, you you don't actually forgive it, forget the act, but when you remember the act you remember that you have forgiven it and you're not going to make them pay for it again. And when we we are in Christ, our sins have been paid for. And He's not going to make us pay for them again. He's not going to hold them against it. It'd be like one of you businessmen say, I forget what Daniel told me, don't charge to... Preachers, plumbers, and policemen, anyway, but I, let's say he violated that rule and he let me run up a big bill. And I didn't want to pay it. And one of somebody went down there and paid it. And Daniel had to put in that ledger that I didn't owe that. And so I go down there to pay it and he goes, You don't owe anything. I know I owe something. No, you don't owe anything. It's been paid for. It's not that Daniel forgot that I bought the stuff. remembers that somebody had paid for it. And I'm not going to have to pay for it again. That's the gospel. That Jesus has paid for it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy to us that our sins are covered and washed away by the blood of Christ. Thank you that we are in a better relationship than we could ever imagine, that we are known by the Creator, that our sins are forgiven, that we have the law written on our heart. Write the law more and more on our hearts. If people are in the dark today, may the light come on. May their wanton be changed. May their will be changed so that they'll want to walk in your ways. So bless us as we sing and worship you in closing. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn as we are God's people, and that is three fifty five. benediction is God's good word that goes with you, that reminds you, you do not go alone. I've been using the one in Hebrews and listen carefully to it. It talks about God being able to equip you for every good thing to do his will and to live a life that pleases him by the power of Christ. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Grace be with you all. Amen.